I'm Tobin Walsh, and welcome to Tobin Talks 2, the place where every week I get to talk to interesting people about anything they want to talk about. This week I talked to Brad Beluchian. Brad is the author of The Wax Pack, On the Open Road in Search of Baseball's Afterlife, where he bought a 30-year-old pack of baseball cards and hunted down the 16 guys that were included in that pack. Enjoy my interview with Brad. But usually I write about science, so um, baseball was a little outside my, my wheelhouse. <laughs> well, it's right in mine. I can't wait to talk about it. So before we lose everybody, let me formally introduce Brad Belukjian. Did I get it right, Brad? Yeah. Because sure. I just practiced it for like an hour and I'm completely unprepared for our interview as a result. So, uh, so Brad is with me because he wrote a book that I actually devoured in about two evenings uh, Tuesday this week. And it's called The Wax Pack on the Open Road in Search of Baseball's Afterlife. So Brad, thanks for joining me. So tell me about the concept of the book. Yeah, I think that's the most the best compliment someone can give is if you binge read it, that's a good sign, right? <laughs> I, I completely I, ignored that. my wife for you know I picked it up at like eight o'clock on Tuesday, and I said I'm going to read it for about an hour. And three and a half hours later, I had to force myself to put it down. Honestly, <laughs> that's, I appreciate it. that's great to hear. Um, the book, uh, the basic premise is that I got a pack of baseball cards that had been sealed since it was made in 1986 and decided whatever random 15 guys were in that pack that I would track them down now or in 2015, 30 years later, and tell the story of the ultimate, where are they now? Um, and this, I chose 86 because that was the first year that I collected cards as a kid. And those were my favorite players. And I was always, always curious about what happened to those guys when they were done playing baseball. So it, kind of started out as just that simple idea but uh, if you read the book you'll see it evolved into something a lot a lot bigger than that a lot bigger than baseball well talk about so I was going to ask you about the 1986 um, aspect and one of the I, I'm, I'm a little bit older than you I, I was born in 1977 so this is right in my wheelhouse in terms of baseball fandom uh, as I you know during the summers I would always scramble into my house at one o'clock central time because the Cubs were on at 120 every day and I mean I remember making time for like every Cubs game in the summer during that time period I also remember this year of tops cards had that real nice banner of the team and so all of us kids would always organize them in team stacks and so it made for a real nice organizational pattern so I was quite interested in the fact that you chose that now, the, well, the one thing I wanted to call you on, I kept coming back to this. So your favorite player just so happened to be in this pack. <laughs> right. So it's a fair question. Um, so I, as I say in a footnote in the book, I didn't open just one pack because if I had done that and like a bunch of the guys were dead or something, it wouldn't have been a very good book. Uh, I, but I also did not open packs until I got Don Carmen, who was my favorite player. So I opened a series of packs and I chose the one that I did. So other thing I, I didn't, definitely did not mix cards between packs. So the pack that I chose, I chose because uh, the guys were almost all alive and they were spread out around the country. And it didn't help. I mean, it didn't hurt that Don Carmen was in there for sure. But I would have written the book without Don Carmen if he had not been in one of the packs. Yeah, no kidding. So the, the so tell me, did you get them on eBay or something? Or yeah, you can. I mean, you can get packs pretty easily, right? For like a couple bucks. It's not. I mean, I I think know, a lot I mean, of people. What did you have? What did you have into them? Like you know, fifty bucks worth of cards or even less. Yeah, it was. I mean, not much. I mean, I think a lot of people in that era saved the packs, thinking and didn't open them, thinking they were going to be worth a bundle, and you know, they're not. But <laughs> man, that's, that's good, crazy good for me. 
Okay, yeah, no kidding. So let's talk about the book. I do want to get to some of the the more the more the less baseball centric themes. We'll get there. Let's talk about the baseball portion of it first. One the part that excites me and and, made it, and definitely makes my wife drowsy um is the idea of taking these 15 you're trying to go find these 15 guys nearly 30 years after these cards were printed starts in the tops factory um tell me about that i was actually surprised it started there what what was the it starts and ends there um tell me about that a bit well i i actually was uh one of my early agents on the project, his wife made the suggestion to me, she was like, you know, what if you open, what if you talked about the making of the cards? And so I thought, huh, that'd be an interesting way to open it up, maybe unexpected. But I actually went and did a bunch of research and and was able to track down the factory workers who were there in 85 that literally made the cards. And although I didn't go talk to them on the trip itself in 2015, a couple of years later, I went and was able to meet them. And then I I wrote a scene that opens the book set in 85 based on what they told me uh, of the process of making the cards. And so I thought it would just, I, I liked, it was very cinematic to me. Like you could almost imagine in a movie version of this book, the first scene being set in the factory and you see the cards moving on the assembly line and the pack getting wrapped up and then, you know, smash cut forward 30 years and the pack gets discovered and still closed. Right. And I think, I like this idea of the pack being this like buried treasure that gets discovered and excavated and is the thing that sets me on my journey. So that was the idea there. And also that I, I like that if the book opens and closes with these, with this woman who's uh, one of the factory workers, because I like the idea that in general, to me, one of the ideas of the book is that, that baseball, baseball's meaning and why baseball is special goes way beyond the players. So um, the fact that the people that made the cards have the same type of community and camaraderie that the players do is significant to me in that, you know, really the book is as much about the community beyond the players as it is the players themselves. You know, it's interesting now that I hear you say that I almost want to go reread uh, the prologue because I wanted to get to the baseball because I'm such a baseball dork. <laughs> Right. That I, I probably skipped that whole thing. Although when you describe it cinematically, it makes a lot of sense to me. It, it, it caught me off guard because I, I expected to open a baseball book and I wanted to get there so quickly that maybe it clouded sort of the, the my initial thoughts of, of why it started there. So I, I'm glad we sure. talked because that's really interesting. Now, the base, let's talk about the, the, the wax packers, you call them, right? The guys that were in the wax pack that you opened. Um let me just read down the list and I have all these notes and I, these are, these are in all sorts of order. So we'll just go one by one. And some of them I remember, and actually some of them I don't, which surprised me. So we have Rance Mullenix. We have Steve Yeager, Gary Templeton, Gary Pettis, Randy Reddy, Don Carmen. We've already mentioned Jaime Konkenauer. Konkenauer. Yep. Konkenauer. Sorry. Uh, Carlton Fisk, Vince Coleman, Lee Mazzilli, Doc Gooden, uh, let's see here, Richie Hebner, Rick Sutcliffe, and Al Cohen's. Yeah. So, what? Tell me about. So, so you get this. You get this pack of cards, right? Now you're gonna turn it. So you already have the idea for the book. You get the pack of cards. Now it's kind of planning and execution time. What What are the first steps you're taking? Well, there were two main 
pre-trip components there was doing all the research on the players themselves so i had i created a file on every player and i relied heavily on like newspapers.com and other library sources to just read the kind of the the body of work of their careers as mostly written about in the sports pages and then i had the logistics of actually setting up the trip and trying to get them to cooperate so i wrote letters snail mail letters to each of them um, introducing the project, and then I would follow it up with a phone call or uh, email if I could get an email address. And I think they were all a little bit like, you know, didn't really understand the concept very well or kind of like, oh, this is weird. But to their credit, they mostly were willing to talk to me. And then I just had to get out my road atlas and say, okay, you know, I have to plan out. I have these seven weeks to do this over. Where am I going to drive? How far am I going to drive? and kind of map it out that way. So I had a, a pretty tight itinerary set before I left. Yeah, I mean, this trip covered, in your Honda Accord, I think, 11, over 11,000 miles. You drank, you know, 120 cups of coffee you've documented. Um, it started in June of 2015 and was completed by a friend's wedding in early August. So you did have a pretty tight window. With some of these guys, they're pretty still notable celebrities, I would say. Um, was the hardest part, I assume, A, making first contact and B, figuring out, you know, how you could find a, a day of their time? Yeah, I mean, it was, luckily, I mean, a lot of the guys are in semi-retirement or retirement, so they, you know, they weren't terribly uh, difficult to get them to find some free time. But, you know, Rick Sutcliffe, for example, is a guy who's a, still a, a commentator for ESPN. So that, I had, I, I probably, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I probably, you know, gave, like planned my travel around his schedule to a large extent where knowing that, okay, he's going to be in, in uh, Missouri on this day, I'm going to build around that. So uh, it was, and then of course, some of the guys wouldn't talk to me and, and generally it was the more famous guys that were, that were less cooperative. And so I had to figure out, well, what am I going to do there? And, you know, as, as you can see in the book, I was determined to still write about everybody. So I would go and <laughs> use some unorthodox methods to try to get to them. Well, as somebody that's, so I, I, uh, in 2016, I actually took my family from my home in Tampa to back to Cedar Rapids, Iowa on a minor league trip. And I did a bit of the same thing without sort of the uh, emphasis on interviewing specific players. But that was the first year Tim Tebow played in the minor league. So I was on the chase for trying to get a Tim Tebow interview. So I felt a little bit like you in regard to <laughs> Carlton Fisk because I chased this guy. Oh, my God. And the best I could do was a media 10-minute press conference in Greenville, South Carolina, which ended up to be like, yeah, just a complete wash. So right. I was quite interested in that. So let's talk about a couple of things. So you rent, you mentioned the the one guy that was my absolute favorite, Rick Sutcliffe. Um, a couple of the other ones. So Rick Sutcliffe, to me, in the book, I mean, like you said, he was still busy, still commentator for ESPN. He basically just the way it mostly works, in my opinion, was you get you go to the guy's hometown or wherever they live now. They you organize a time and they pick you up and sort of take take you on memory lane, right? Um, and Sutcliffe struck me as like such like a nice guy yeah i right he was just such an open book i mean i was really impressed by how honest he seemed about everything you know and he's didn't filter 
and and just but I think like you know, he he volunteered that we went to his high school and we as we we're, were walking down the steps he volunteered that story about how when he was in high school this this jerk you know spat in a girl's hair or something and he basically knocked the guy out and I think little stories like that tell a lot about someone's character um, and Sutcliffe I think is just a really solid good guy I mean who had to deal with a lot of difficult things. I mean, you know, I'm talking in the book about how much anger he has for his father and how that affected him and his, his baseball career and so forth. Yeah, it is, it is interesting when you hear guys that you see on TV with such candor and I mean, using words like, you know, call his dad a piece of shit, you know, I mean, I, I was like, Whoa, that's amazing. But he did so in a way that you completely felt like, yeah, it's probably the right word, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I, I think if Sutcliffe could swear on TV, he would, <laughs> but oh, you know, that, really? that's, okay. that's just how he is. I mean, that's how he talks. It's, it's refreshing. I enjoyed it. Nice. And then, so I was looking forward to the dot good and stuff. And as soon as I got to the chapter, I knew what was going to happen because as soon as you said it was, I can't remember exactly the, the situation, but you were working through his son, who is also his agent to try to get some time with doc um, who's obviously, you know, probably the most prolific pitcher in that 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 card deck, right? So he's tough to tough to wrangle in. We know is, you know, obviously in and out of uh, drugs and things like that. So it was hard to get a hold of him. And then I think you were supposed to meet with him when he was filming the Thirty for Thirty. Yeah, it was right around that time. Yeah, exactly. And I remember it because I watched the Thirty for Thirty. And I have a buddy, my my buddy from New York named Paul. So I called Paul and I said, Paul, you got to see this 30 for 30, man. Strawberry, he has his stuff together and Doc looks like he's strung out again. Yep. And so like when all your thing went down, I, you know, it, I wanted to do two things. Number one, commend you on trying to chase him down. But also you didn't let the fact that you didn't get to speak to Doc Gooden not let you tell the story of finding him through his son. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so Doc, little Doc, his son, um, he is his representative, his agent, and I had been in contact with little Doc leading up to the trip about wanting to interview both him and his father. And I, you know, I always wanted the chapter to focus somewhat on little Doc because I felt like, how do you write something original about Doc Gooden when the guy's written three autobiographies himself? His story is pretty much out there, but I felt like there was nothing about his oldest son. And so I thought that was going to be one of my angles in the, in the chapter. Um, his son basically said, you know, I, you, I want you to pay me and my dad to talk to you. And I said, no, I mean, that's just, you know, journalism that's frowned on ethically. Um, but he insisted. So I said, okay, I will pay but only if I'm, I'm going to disclose in the book that I'm paying. So there's no, you know, everything is transparent. So we had set up, I was going to pay his dad $500 to meet with him. We had a, a date and a time set up. And then as I document in the, in the book, that morning comes and all of a sudden little doc is making all these excuses for his father that just didn't add up. And over the course of those two days, it became more and more obvious that what was going on I was still able to go to the Gooden household, which was fascinating. I mean, to be in Doc Gooden's living room and see all the things on the wall and, you know, just know where I was on Long Island. And I got to interview little Doc, who was very helpful and, you know, gave me a lot of insight. And 
the story becomes, you know, a, a lot about telling Doc's story through his son, but also the story of, you know, the absence of Doc Gooden is, is the story there. Yeah, I came away feeling, yeah, you know, I, I, I felt really bad for his son. I really mm-hmm. did. I, I, yeah. I, you can, and I, I imagine, so you're, it, it, I'm thinking as a journalist, so you're sitting in his living room, you sort of in the back of your mind know you're being evaded. And his son, who's also being evaded, is trying to make excuses for his dad. Right. I mean, it's got to be an odd position to be, you know, I'm sure you wanted to come out and be like, hey, man, is your dad like falling off the wagon again? What's going on? And yeah, well, and I actually did. If you look at that text exchange, I actually did say that if you read the uh, back and the back and that's forth, bold. you know, bold. Um, but I think I mean, I, again, I think even the characters that are somewhat, um, I don't know, portrayed in a less than positive light in the book there's some sympathy and, and empathy there because, you know, Carlton Fisk, for example, I include the backstory there where you can see like what a, what a prick his father was um, and how that probably influenced who Carlton was. Right. Um, Vince Coleman, who comes across maybe the worst of everybody, worst of everybody. I don't really get into this, but you know, he, he never really knew his father. So again, the, the impact that fathers have on their kids is a huge theme in in the book. Yeah, I wanted to get to you know the the names I had written down that particularly interested me before. So I wrote down names as I knew who the Wax Packers were, and they were Doc Gooden, who we talked about, Rick Sutcliffe, um, obviously for personal reasons. I grew up watching Big Red on the mound for the Cubs, Carlton Fisk. I just thought that was an interesting story. I mean, for any young journalist who wants to read how to try to get in front of somebody that because you really want to get in front of them. I think that's a really interesting story because you chased him from Florida to Cooperstown. It would, that was just crazy. And, and Oh, by the way, I don't want to bury the lead, but I think, you know, I I didn't understand what his, the, 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 his agent calling you about a blog post. I didn't really understand what went on there. Well, I think she was basically threatening to, I mean, she was upset that I had, that she felt like Fisk was portrayed in a negative way and, or unfairly and, you know, the typical, like, Oh, I could sue you kind of stuff. And, Oh, I mean, okay. I didn't, yeah. Yeah. Man, that's interesting. So it, he was obviously a tough character. And, and like you said, I, now you're jogging my memory to say he was basically made that way by a father who was just, uh, you know, a battle ax. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say entirely, but I think that you can see there's something, about who he is 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 product of his environment. Yeah, yeah. So I've those are the guys I listed off that I that you know caught my eye. What about you? What after all this trip and after you've marinated on it for a while, who who what members do you have that you know you sit back and go, God, that was cool. Well, to me, the the bigger story are the other guys that who are not the star players, right? The fact that Randy Reddy and Don Carmen and Jaime Coconut and Rance Mullenix. I mean, these guys really are i think the the emotional center and the stars of the book and it goes to show you that um the players that maybe were the less accomplished in baseball were more successful and happy after baseball and so it's that kind of tortoise and the hare idea that um you know it, it's i mean and i always liked the guys that were the the bench warmers as a kid so it was sort of uh, because i myself identify as an underdog having as a kid been kind of picked on and all that. So is there some vindication in there, I think for me and for every underdog ever that this is how it it played out. 
Yeah, let me, and that's a good segue, I think, to talking about sort of, I, I wrote down four um, themes that I, I caught during the book, and I wanted to run them by you as as the author. Again, we're talking to Brad Belukjian from the Wax Pack. Um, I encourage you to pick it up. I'll, I'll post all the links to do so on my social media and, and tag you in it, of course. So, Brad, I, I wrote down fatherhood. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm a father of five baseball loving father of five i like nothing more than to watch games with my kids so that was one vulnerability mm-hmm. uh courage i wrote courage down in terms of the courage to just reach out to these people and just kind of w- without knowing what the outcome might be and then lastly i wrote regret mm-hmm. um a lot of the discussions with the guys there were points at which you got to hey why'd you hang it up you know for paraphrasing of course so those are the themes i came up with is that encompassing or are there more? Yeah, I, think, I think that's a good, yeah, that's a good read on it. I think sort of tying some of that together, I would say the, the thing you can take out of the book is an understanding of our relationship with fear. Right. And so that kind of cuts across the courage and the vulnerability and that um, fear, I think is the, the most destructive force in the, in the universe and in order, I mean, it's also why I talked about my, my dealings with OCD, which is an anxiety disorder, right? And what the players, all these guys to have played at that level of Major League Baseball had to have uh, a mastery of fear because you're not going to be successful in a sport where you fail more than you succeed. And, you know, it's such a long punishing season if you if you're playing with if you're if fear has the best of you you're playing out of fear you're not going to be successful so all these guys had figured out how to let go of their failure to live in the present moment to not be too preoccupied with the future that sort of buddhist idea of being present and i call the baseball players accidental buddhists and i think we can you know a lot of what don carmen shared as in his role as a psychologist with me about how to how we can't control our thoughts and our feelings, but we can control our reaction to them. It just gets at this idea that um, we, we, we could all be a lot happier if we let go of that need for security and certainty all the time. And we just um, accept that, you know, what we, what we, all we can control is our reaction to things. And that even if fear creeps in, the more you try to resist fear and fight fear, the worse it's going to get, you know, the only way to overcome your fear is to accept it and coexist with it. Yeah, it's interesting. I talk to a lot of football players and they'll tell me, hey, I exist because of fear. I fear the fact that some guy that's sitting in the bench is trying to take my job constantly. So I wanted to, if, if you mentioned it, I was going to ask you about that. How do you juxtapose sort of the abandonment of fear that makes these guys successful versus other pro athletes that seem to think that they need fear to excel? Right. Well, I think um, to some extent, fear it can be a, a, an effective motivator when you're playing sports as you said like the fear that you are going to get replaced by somebody or even rick Sutcliffe talking about how the anger he experienced from his father's treatment of him how that made him a better pitcher when fear really is just uh, anger is just really a type of fear or a result of fear so i think there is something to that um but i think more so I'm thinking of kind of in the, in the big picture, in the long run, 
that if you that like the the the, the the playing career of all these players is a very short period of their lives, right? It's it's very fleeting, and you can't sustain that level of living in fear for very long. You're gonna you're gonna burn out, and so the only way these guys were able to, you know, adjust to their life after baseball was to learn to let go of that fear, and to accept or to accept it, let go of it, know that you know, um, that they're they're not going to spend the rest of their lives with somebody chasing them for their job. So it's a, it's a paradox that I, I think can coexist a little bit when it comes to their playing career, but in the, in the long scheme of life, I don't think it's sustainable to live your life always looking over your shoulder. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. It's wearing for one. Um, so Brad, what about the idea? So when I went on that trip with my kids, uh, I started off with this nostalgic view of what this was going to be, right? It was going to be a three-week pilgrimage that ended, you know, that culminated with me watching uh, a minor league game with my father on Father's Day, like I used to back back when, and it just dripped in nostalgia. Um, nostalgia for me is is really it cuts both sides, right? So that it, you can never recreate the feeling that was created with you within you initially, right? So I'm thinking of your Don Carmen situation. This is your favorite player. You're in his house. You know, when you leave his house, is there a little bit of you that's like, man, you know what I mean? It's such a buildup for you. It's a big nostalgic moment and then it's over. Right. Well, I think it goes back to that, again, that sort of Buddhist idea of like attachment, right? I think nostalgia without attachment is, is healthy. If you can appreciate, I mean, nostalgia is basically just romanticizing the past. If you can go there and appreciate that and then let go of it and get back to the present, then that's healthy. If you dwell on it and dwell on the past, then it's, it's no longer a good thing. Right. And I think that, um, if you're just mindful of that, like when I had that experience with Don Carmen being, I mean, just, I'm a big believer in the reality of impermanence everything's impermanent i mean that book is also about impermanence right everything's temporary um everything changes and so if you dig your heels in and you insist on that you're never going to let go of that feeling of meeting don carmen you're being delusional right so to me it's it's a adjustment you make in your mind that you say okay i can appreciate this without dwelling on it yeah and so now the book was released on April 1st mm-hmm. and, you know, you know, unfortunately awful timing for, you know, a book tour to be canceled <laughs> right. and no things book, like that. No bookstores have been open since my book came out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No kidding. So the underdog, you know, tale continues, right? Um, so what, give me an update on, you know, I, I assume you'll do a book tour at some point and what's next for you. Yeah. So I, I do hope to do a book tour down the line, but it's been exciting that, um, Several of us who have baseball books coming out now have all come together to form this group called the Pandemic Baseball Book Club, uh, and it's pbbclub.com, and it's the founders and me, Eric Nussbaum, Anika Orock, Jason Turbo, we're all in the same boat of having our promotional plans affected. And so we've we've created this thing, and it's grown to like 16 authors, where we're, we have a website, we're a podcast, we're interviewing each other. We're all helping each other promote, and it's a great thing to see. You know, it, 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 I'm kind of 
it's it's too bad that it would take a pandemic for people to work together like this. But yeah, I'm I'm glad it's happened because to me, yeah, if you by helping other people, you're you're just going to help yourself. So we're um, I hope people can check that out. I love it. Well, I mean, it, the pandemic. There's certain things that we just have to deal with, right? And the unfortunate reality is the timing didn't work. But it's you know more of a short-term delay than anything, and it allows you to now find a new creative mode and connect with other authors, which I think is pretty neat. Yeah, and it, you know it may end up actually extending the promotional window of the book because when baseball does come back, I can promote it some more. Yeah, no kidding. Well, you have me. I mean, like I said, I picked up the book on a Tuesday evening, read it for two and a half hours that night, a couple hours the next day, and I mean, it was, for me, it was a, was just a walk down memory lane coupled with a realization of, you know, the greater, you know, the meaning outside the lines of a baseball field as well. So I commend you on writing a great book. Again, Brad's book is called The Wax Pack on the Open Road in Search of Baseball's Afterlife. So Brad, all the guests that come on my show, I ask them two questions in parting. Um, and the first one, you can take this wherever you want. Some people joke, some people have pretty, you know, serious and high level stuff. The first one I always ask people is what's making you happy today? <laughs> well, I'm actually struggling a lot with the the, the pandemic situation um, because it's. I mean, I'm I'm single and have, you know have roommates, and it's it's just a such. I I, I miss having the freedom to to do what I normally do. Um, but what's making me happy today? Uh, I would say is the this community that I was just talking about that I, this group of authors that are all in the same situation and we're all, you know, the emails are flying back and forth. We're, we're brainstorming together. We're working together. The creative juices are flowing and that sense of community makes me happy. Nice. And then the last question, what, what would you change? In, in, in just in general question, what would I change? In, in any regard, whatever comes to mind. <laughs> Huh. What would I change? Um, Other than getting I, out of the house. If I could go back in the past, you mean? Past, present, future, well, about I think, the book, about baseball, what? Right. Um, I'll get rid of the designated hitter. Really? Yeah. Okay. I'm a designated hitter guy. Like, I'm a National League person, but, oh, my goodness, I... Yeah, I you know I I come from it from a different angle. One of the things your pandemic baseball writers need to solve for me, who is a parent of five, is how the hell do I get my kids to play baseball for more than one season? Because I I'm just fearing that I'm contributing to the problem of burying baseball with every child I raise. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, hey Ben, I really appreciate. Or excuse me, Brad. Oh my God. I really appreciate you coming on. Again, everybody needs to check out the Wax Pack on the open road in search of baseball's afterlife. Thank you so much, Brad, and best of luck. Hopefully this pandemic gets over and you're on the road. If you're around Tampa, I expect a call. All right. No, I'd love it. Thank you very much. I'll try to bring I'll try to find Carlton yeah. for you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, all right. Joining Tobin Talks 2. This is Tobin Walsh saying, see you next time.